community is facing the biggest health crisis since the flu pandemic of 1918, the largest economic crisis since the Great Depression of 1929, and greatest social unrest since the late 1960s. Other than that, everything's fantastic. Making America great again. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. In Palinville, New York on WLPP. Up in Grand Rapids on WPRR. Down in New Orleans on WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF, up in the Twin Cities. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week, no matter what. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. That may be even more thrillinger than usual, Desi Doyen. Yes, I could do we, with a little less thrilling. <laughs> I know, me too. We, uh, I, I should just uh, say in advance, apologize in advance. We are broadcasting uh, today from our home studio, which means that uh, with protests happening, peaceful protests, by the way, happening not far from where we are right now in Hollywood, uh, there are a few hundred, perhaps a few thousand folks gathering down uh, on Hollywood in front of the Chinese theater, which means, of course, there are a lot of police, a lot of police cars, a lot of police helicopters, a lot of news helicopters, all of which are circling above us as we go to air. I should note we are perfectly safe. There is no concern. But if you do hear helicopters and sirens uh, throughout the uh, broadcast today, that would be why. You'll know what it is. Also seems like our internet is having trouble around here. I suspect that may have something to do with whatever the police are doing out there. Uh, so we're, we're just, uh, you know, hanging on by a thread. But we are here with you <laughs> and glad you are here with us Indeed. today. Indeed. Um, there are elections Happening even as we speak in Indiana, Maryland, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, South Dakota, and Washington, D.C., just to name a few. Those are uh, presidential primary states on Tuesday. Hopefully, voters have already voted in them uh, via absentee ballot. 
though that is not an option for everyone for various reasons. Other states, such as Missouri, are also holding municipal elections on Tuesday, June 2nd, as are others around the country. Shamefully, Missouri... The state of Missouri uh, limits who is allowed to vote by absentee ballot, even during a pandemic. And it's Republican Governor Mike Parsons, apparently, could not care less. Or more accurately, he's just fine with some people not being able to participate in their own democracy. You know, I hope people feel safe but uh, to go out and vote. But if they don't, you know, the number one thing is their safety should be number one. So if they don't... Um, then then don't go out and vote. Yeah, don't go vote. If you don't feel safe, don't go vote. Why should he change any of the procedures to make it easier for people to vote so they do feel safe voting, for example, from home? Not in Missouri, where you have to have uh, either have to be over the age of 65 or have a specific excuse to be allowed to vote by mail. They treat you like a child. You must ask permission to be able to not vote in person. Correct. Uh, But uh, perhaps that's the kind of thinking that moved my old home state of Missouri from a closely divided battleground state back when I last lived there in the 80s or so to a uh, reliably Republican right wing red state right now where even many of my otherwise very smart relatives are all now wingnut Republicans. Not all, but many. It's either the uh, crappy voting system or Fox News or both, I suspect, but that's where we are. In any event, we will have any noteworthy results from Tuesday's elections on our next broadcast. That's if enough vote-by-mail ballots are actually tallied by computers, by the way, to to tell us anything about who won and lost in the days ahead. It is not only uh, Missouri where people are having a difficult time voting on Tuesday. Uh, I mentioned briefly on yesterday's broadcast, as it came in just before airtime, that Pennsylvania's Democratic Governor Tom Wolf was extending the mail ballot ballot deadline for the June 2nd primary by a few days in Pennsylvania. Uh, More specifically, Wolf said he's now going to allow six counties to have up to seven days beyond Tuesday's primary to submit ballots by mail in Allegheny, Dauphin, uh, Delaware, Erie, Montgomery, and Philadelphia counties. In those six counties, protests in recent days over the death of George Floyd uh, became violent. Protests in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh saw violent clashes with police who protesters say used unnecessary force on those who weren't threatening or endangering anyone. Uh, But in those counties, ballots must be received by mail by 5 p.m. June 9. So you have some time if you're listening in any of those counties. The ballots must still be postmarked, however, by 8 p.m. on June 2nd. So I take it back. Yang got no time. By the time you hear this, it's probably past the deadline to... uh, Uh, either mail in or hand deliver absentee ballots got to be in by June 2nd at 8 p.m. The primary on Tuesday is the first statewide election to feature voting by mail in a state where until the coronavirus, most voters were forced to vote on 100 percent unverifiable touchscreens at the polling place. And absentee voting was extremely limited in that you had to essentially provide an excuse such as a doctor's order. 
But about 1.8 million residents have now applied to vote by mail, uh, uh, for, according to state officials, for this primary since last year. Before the virus, Governor Wolf signed the state's most sweeping election reform bill in decades, a measure which allowed voters to cast ballots by mail without an excuse. And that legislation received strong bipartisan support. Uh, some county election officials, however, across the state have said that they expect the counting of all the mail-in ballots could take days. County officials have expressed concerns about handling the volume in the primary. And if they think it's bad in the primary, oh, just wait until November. Uh, they better get ready, especially in key battleground states like Pennsylvania. The primary there was initially slated to take place April 28. It was postponed until June 2nd because of the coronavirus. But while that extension may be helpful in Pennsylvania, those seven extra days for ballots to arrive, voters in Idaho do not appear to be quite so lucky. As of this hour, not by a long shot. According to the Idaho statesman, Idaho voters got extra time to request their absentee ballots for the primary election, but they may not even receive those ballots in time to actually vote. Idaho's Deputy Secretary of State, Chad Hook, said about 14,000 additional people were able to request ballots after a federal judge extended the deadline to request them by a week following last-minute problems with the Idaho Votes website, where voters were supposed to be able to request ballots for the primary. But they couldn't. There were problems. So it was extended by the federal judge, and now uh, about 14,000 people, that's about 3% of the total absentee ballots uh, that were requested, uh, came in with that extension. However, according to Hoke, the uh, the U.S. District Judge Lynn Windmill opted to not also extend the deadline for when the ballots may be returned to the county. Well, gosh, that's just so unhelpful, uh, isn't it? Uh, it's uh, possible that therefore some voters will receive their ballots after the deadline for returning them, which is also Tuesday, June two. Uh, so, you know. I, these are some, this is a preview of some of the problems that we are going to see in all 50 states all at once come November 3rd. You know, with websites that are overwhelmed, absentee ballots that don't get out in time, then what? I mean, what do you do? Why are you... Idaho decided, frankly, smartly to have an all-vote-by-mail primary here, but there apparently are no other options for getting a ballot and delivering a ballot at this point, something that it seems like they should have thought through in case something goes wrong, like the website. This uh, election was originally scheduled for May 19. It includes races in uh, both parties for Idaho's two seats in the U.S. House of Representatives, plus the Senate seat there held by a Republican. Each of the 105 seats in the Idaho legislature is also up this year, as are four offices in every county, including commissioner, uh, commissioner districts one, two, prosecutor and sheriff. In other words, really important seats. If you've been paying attention to this show and beginning to appreciate how important state and local elections are, particularly since state legislatures will be redistricting after the 2020 census to determine 
how seats and services will be doled out over the next decade after this November's election. So these local elections are important everywhere. So given the these problems here in Idaho, you are able to uh, drop off your ballot if you can get to the county seat, to the county election headquarters by 8 p.m. on Tuesday night. But for those who don't even receive a ballot until after Tuesday, well, sorry. Now, mind you, this is Idaho, a very Republican state. Imagine what kind of havoc can be caused, likely will be caused in other states around the country this November. Consider this as just one small preview of the chaos that we are likely to see, especially as Congress continues to refuse to grant the $4 billion uh, that state election officials around the country are asking for in order to pull all of this off in November. And if Republicans fail to give emergency funding to the U.S. Postal Service, as they teeter on insolvency right now, thanks to the coronavirus epidemic, and as Trump and the Republicans are suggesting they may just, you know, let the Postal Service die, boy, if you think these... Um, uh, the the confusion at these primaries on June 2nd are bad. Just wait till November 3rd. In other news from our new ongoing American dystopia, uh, Donald Trump likes to have props, you know, at his uh, at his press conferences. Uh, and after a weekend when he was reportedly smarting from news reports that he was being hidden in a bunker below the White House because of protests outside the White House, because, you know, he's actually a coward. Well, he decided to show how brave he was by holding a press conference and using the St. John's Episcopal Church across the street as his prop after that press conference. But that meant clearing out hundreds of peaceful protesters that had amassed there so that he could get his tough guy photo op holding up a Bible in front of the church and somehow to use that for a campaign video, which the White House did and his campaign immediately released just hours after this photo op. Well, the right rev, the right reverend Marianne Booty, the Episcopal Bishop of Washington, D.C., blasted Donald Trump on Monday night after he had peaceful protesters tear-gassed, tear-gassed in front of the White House, in front of this church, so that he could use the church to stage the photo op. Here's her remarks on CNN. I want to thank you for letting me be on this, uh, be part of this conversation. Let me be clear. Uh, the president just used a Bible, the most sacred text of the Judeo-Christian tradition, and one of the churches of my diocese, without permission, as a backdrop for a message antithetical to the teachings of Jesus and everything that our churches stand for. And to do so, as you just said, he sanctioned the use of tear gas by police officers in riot gear to clear the churchyard. I am outraged. The president did not pray when he came to St. John's, nor, as you just articulated, did he acknowledge the agony of our country right now, and in particular that of the people of color in our nation, who wonder if anyone ever, anyone in, in, in public power will ever acknowledge their sacred words, and who are rightfully demanding an end to 400 years of systemic racism and white supremacy in our country. And I just want the world to know that we in the Diocese of Washington, following Jesus and his way of love, do not 
we distance ourselves from the from the incendiary language of this president. Uh, we follow someone who lived a life of nonviolence and sacrificial love. We align ourselves with those seeking justice for the death of George Floyd and countless others through the sacred act of peaceful protest. And I, <laughs> I just can't believe what my eyes have seen tonight. That was Reverend Marion Booty, the Episcopal Bishop of Washington, D.C. Trump had visited the church shortly after giving a formal address at the White House in which he railed against the protests in major cities caused by the killing of George Floyd and demanded, demanded, the governors call in the National Guard to, quote, dominate the streets, just as Jesus would have wanted. Uh, his defense secretary, Mark Esper, described the nation's cities as their, quote, battle space. And the military's Joint Chief of Staff, General Milley, was later seen roaming around the cleared areas in D.C. in battle fatigues as part of Trump's show. Reverend Ginny Gerbezi, an Episcopal priest in D.C. at that church, said that federal police used tear gas to expel her and other people from St. John's Episcopal Church. To make way for Trump's photo op staged there on Monday night, they turned holy ground into a battlefield, she told the Religion News Service. The priest, uh, who said she was wearing her clerical clothing at the time, described how the police had breached church grounds and began spraying tear gas, effectively chasing her out uh, along with her seminarian and others on the church patio, uh, chased out from the premises. Gervasi said the police in their riot gear with their black shields and the whole bit started uh, pushing onto the patio of St. John's Lafayette Square. The priest told Religion News that she was unaware of the reasons for the violent expulsion until after the president began the photo op during which he held up a Bible and didn't bother to enter, enter the church itself. That uh, is uh, what it was for, she said, to clear the patio so that man could stand in front of that building with a Bible. All of that, despite the fact that the 7 p.m. curfew had not yet even begun in D.C., the police deployed tear gas and flashbangs to clear away the protesters who were holding a peaceful demonstration, a demonstration against police brutality, <laughs> which is just kind of mind-blowing. So neither protesters or even religious people were spared from all of this. Neither were journalists. This is what it sounded like while a news crew from the Australia 7 Network was filming in the park near the church before it was cleared out as they were broadcasting live at the time back to Australia as Trump's military police, because that's who these were. These were not D.C. police. These were military police. They were federal troops as they actually punched the crew's cameraman with their riot shields. Uh, you're outside the White House where Donald Trump is about to uh, to speak. It's getting a bit tense. Yeah, absolutely, guys. We've just had to run about a block as police moved in. We've been uh, fired at with rubber bullets. My cameraman has been hit. Uh, we've also seen tear gas being used. Here we go, they're moving through again. This is exactly what it looks like. Exactly what it looks like. We're just staying safely. Oh. Whoa. Oh. Amelia, can you hear us? Amelia, are you okay? Or your cameraman? Hello, Amelia. Um, the police just charged at Amelia and, um, and our 7 News cameraman there and looks like a, um, 
a policeman just uh, punched our cameraman. Which is interesting because um, they're, they're not discriminating between protesters and the media here. Amelia, yeah. can you hear us yet? Amelia, are you there? You heard are you okay? at the moment. They chased us down that street and as you see uh, they were firing uh, these rubber bullets at everyone. There is tear gas and now we are really surrounded by the police and you really saw the way that they dealt with my cameraman Tim. They're quite violent and they do not care who they're targeting at the moment. Cool, huh? Dramatic and scary. Very scary. They hit her with a baton. Tough guy president has now caused an international incident so that he could show everyone how tough he was in front of the White House at a church during a peaceful protest. Very impressive, Mr. President. Very tough. Of course, the U.S. ambassador to Australia was not so pleased about it. He responded to those uh, images uh, in a statement saying freedom of the press is a right Australians and Americans hold dear. We take mistreatment of journalists seriously, as do all who take diplomacy seriously. We remain steadfast in our commitment to protecting journalists, he said, and guaranteeing equal justice under the law for all. After that, after he had quoted Secretary of State Mike Pompeo in The Importance of a Free Press. Well, Australia may take mistreatment of journalists uh, seriously, but obviously this White House does not, as Trump has called for mass arrests and threatened to send those stormtroopers that we saw in Lafayette Square all over the country to prove that he's now the law and order president that he thinks he needs to be to win re-election. That's the new plan. Personally, I know many are kind of freaked out about uh, about this call to send federal troops out around the country. I think he's a bluffer. I could be wrong, but frankly, I'm not scared of him in the least. The police on the ground, however, who have instigated violence all over the country, that's another question. Trump is eventually going to go away. The institutionalized racism and brutality of many of our nation's police forces, however, may not, unless we all force them to move in that direction unless we vote to move in that direction. We're joined next by policing expert Alex Vitale of Brooklyn College to discuss the growing call in recent days around the country to defund the police. What exactly does that mean? Professor Vitale will be here to explain right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. <laughs> What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter, and we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Brad 
podcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com here in our Hollywood bunker surrounded by sirens and helicopters. Glad you could uh, stick with us here. Our friend and frequent guest on this program, David Dayan of the American Prospect, also lives here in Southern California. Uh, In his case, he's a little bit closer to the beach in Santa Monica, not far from Venice, where he writes he got word over the weekend that Protesters were converging about a block or two from his house. By the time he got there, they had scattered. But he notes that he caught a phalanx of officers who made a staging ground on Venice Boulevard. There had to be about 30 cop cars, he writes, and at least 50 to 60 officers decked out in face shields and riot gear. Green guns, which fire rubber bullets, were being handed out along with zip ties. What he kept thinking about, he says, is that nobody in this group had to worry about having enough personal protective equipment. Police budgets, he says, are obscenely large. He said, I heard helicopters and sirens all night. Those came from our tax dollars. The batons flying indiscriminately came from our tax dollars. The tear gas canisters and rubber bullets and pepper pellets and the rest, our tax dollars. We generously fund the terrorizing of certain people and certain communities, he wrote. He said we need to have a conversation about that, especially given that everything else in local budgets will be reflexively cut during the pandemic crisis. Yes, we spoke to David last week on this show about the drastic cuts that are likely coming to state and local municipalities as hard fiscal budget deadlines set in on July 1 in many jurisdictions around the country. And Congress is dragging its feet about issuing a bailout for those places where services and jobs could be cut radically in the coming days due to the economic crisis caused by the coronavirus. Police spending, Dan observes, is the local equivalent of federal military spending. It is magic money that is undeterred by economic or fiscal conditions. That, he said, must stop. Of course, we've reported for years on this program and at Bradblog.com about the extraordinary amount of money and resources and weapons that have been funneled to local and state police forces in order to militarize them and often to terrorize the populace that are supposed to be that they're supposed to be protecting and serving in the bargain that happened of course in the wake of 9/11 and then the occupy wall street demonstrations that as services elsewhere for schools and roads and bridges and medical care social services housing for the homeless all of that has been cut to the bone i've seen quite a few calls over the past 24 to 48 hours to yes defund the police on a protesters sign in an email someone sent me yesterday from the group Jewish Voice for Peace from an article at The Nation by Alex Vitali headlined the only solution is to defund the police. Vitali begins this way. The explosion of protests across the U.S. in recent days makes clear that the crisis in Minneapolis is a national crisis. It has been almost six years since the murders of Mike Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and Eric Garner, who also told his killer cops that he could not breathe as they choked the life out of him, also on camera, for his crime of selling loose cigarettes in Staten Island, New York. 
Vitali says little has changed in those six years and how poor communities of color are being policed. It's time to rethink superficial and ineffective procedural police reforms and move to defund the police instead. Defund the police? Really? What does that actually mean? Do, do away with police forces entirely? Surely that can't be the call. Or is it? Here to explain that call is Alex S. Vitali. He is professor of sociology at Brooklyn College and coordinator of its policing and social justice project. He has spent 25 years writing about policing and consults both police departments and human rights organizations internationally. As an expert on sociology, policing, community policing, public safety, civil disorder and more. He is also the author of several books, including The End of Policing, and his essays have appeared in The New York Times, The Nation, Daily, New York Daily News, and USA Today. Professor Vitali, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you, Brad. Uh, before we get to uh, what defunding the police actually means in the context that you and others are now calling for it, in your piece uh, this weekend at The Nation, you describe some of the uh, reforms that were put in place by the Obama administration after the murders of Michael Brown and Eric Garner, which I was stunned to be reminded last night was actually six years ago. It feels like six months at this rate. Uh, in any event, you argue that the murders of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the less well-covered police killing of 26-year-old African-American emergency medical technician Brianna Taylor, who was asleep in her apartment when cops busted down the door and ended up shooting her in Louisville, Kentucky uh, in March, that those killings prove what we already knew. Police reform has failed, you argue. What were some of the reforms that were put in place after Ferguson and the uh, choking death of Eric Garner? Uh, and, and, uh, and that was during the Obama administration. And how do you feel that they have failed as you see it? So, you know, Minneapolis was kind of a shining star of this new approach to police reform that, that comes out of the Obama administration, the Department of Justice, and, uh, and also a lot of kind of academic think tanks. Mm -hmm. And their idea was if we can make the police more professional, less biased, more transparent, that this will help restore people's trust in policing. So they implement things like implicit bias training, mindfulness training, de-escalation training. They give police body cameras. They set up a lot of police community encounter sessions. Mm -hmm. They try to identify a few problem officers to give them supplemental training. These are the kinds of things that they hope will create uh, a more modern professional police force that hopefully, hopefully will kill fewer unarmed black people. And apparently it didn't work. There's an opinion piece uh, in the New York Times over the weekend calling for a, uh, quote, no more money for the police. They note that Minneapolis, uh, the, the Minneapolis Police Department has been held up as a model of progressive pol uh, police reform uh, with all of these new programs and so forth. Is it uh, too early to determine whether or not? Those reforms have actually failed. Obviously, they did in the case of George Floyd, but um, have they had the time to do what they were supposed to do? And does uh, this one killing, uh, as horrific as it is, uh, tell us that the whole program was a failure? Well, it's not just the one killing. As you said in your introduction, right, it's a continued pattern. Mm -hmm. The number of police killings has not been reduced. 
over the last five or six years. The number of low-level misdemeanor arrests has not been reduced. The number of police in our schools has not been reduced. The war on drugs has not been reduced. So we haven't seen real changes in the impact of policing on those who are most heavily policed. And that's, that's really the problem here, right, is that we're trying to fix policing through the lens of these occasional high-profile horrific incidents, mm-hmm. when instead I think the anger that we see bursting out across the country right now is about the everyday abuses that police meet out to people even when they are following proper procedure. Hmm. You know, a totally lawful, procedurally proper, low-level drug arrest is still going to ruin some young person's life for no good reason. It does not contribute to public health. It does not contribute to public safety. It certainly doesn't prevent anyone from getting drugs. And that is the root of the problem that procedural reforms fail to grasp. and uh, after the, uh, well, the killing of George Floyd uh, is an obvious sign of failure uh, as far as reform initiatives go. But you also argue that the the yardsticks used to measure success in these programs appears to be all wrong in the first place. While some of these, there are, you know, positive aspects uh, to some of them. And yet there's really no way to tell if they are working because they are based on whether certain reforms are implemented as opposed to rather they actually work. Do I, do I understand that argument correctly? That's right. Uh, most of the proponents of these procedural reforms will say things like, well, they had 27 community meetings. They met the metric. Check. Mm-hmm. You know, or they'll say, well, we surveyed some members of the public after they participated in these meetings, and they told us they felt better about the police. Therefore, <laughs> it works. <laughs> <laughs> now, there, are, there is some research that shows small improvements uh-huh. in things like the levels of use of force or, or official complaints against the police, but we're talking about 5 or 10% improvements, really mm-hmm. minuscule improvements, despite the fact that we've flooded these cities with tens of millions of dollars in new money to try to fix this, and we have almost nothing to show for it. And if there is no evidence that these things like implicit bias training or community relations initiatives, if that, that, the, that those things actually help, what is the point of these programs and why are they being implemented in the first place? I think they're providing political cover. Mm. And that's why I find them so objectionable. It's one thing to say that they don't work or that maybe it's a good faith effort and it's failed and now we're going to rethink it. But what we see is that this has been used by police leaders and political leaders to deflect and demobilize the protests against them. Mm. Don't worry. We're going to fix it. We're going to give them implicit bias training and de-escalation training and everything will be fine. Mm. Stop protesting. Everything's good now. And I think that's part of why the protests now are so angry, so confrontational, is that they were sold a bill of goods, and they resent it. I want to talk a little bit more about the politics in a moment, but let's let's get to this uh, to your specific call here to defund the police. When we hear these calls, uh, what are we actually talking about? No more police departments? That that can't be, can it? Well, that's certainly not what anyone is proposing. 
uh, we're ha- we have dozens of places across the country where people have organized campaigns mm-hmm. to dial back police funding. Now, some folks would like to, you know, engage in a process that might lead to some better world where there's no police, but no one is out there saying tomorrow we can just flip a switch and there are no police. Most of these proposals are about rolling back increases in police spending over the last 10 years. Mm. The, the main proposal in New York, which I'm involved with, is to cut the funding by a billion dollars. Mm which sounds like a lot of money, but that would put the NYPD back where they were five years ago. That's it. Would that end up, uh, would you end up getting rid of officers, or do you essentially de-escalate what I was describing in the, uh, in the opening segment, their sort of their militarization of these, uh, of these police forces? The, the vast majority of costs in policing are for personnel, so there's no way to, to cut the budgets without getting at personnel. But our proposal is to implement the billion dollars over four or five years through attrition and cuts to overtime and cuts to new surveillance technology and some of this militarized equipment you're referring to. In the uh, New York Times I referenced, uh, I, I don't know if you saw this uh, op-ed by uh, uh, Philip McCarris and Thenway McCarris, uh, but they say by changing po- uh, changing policies or statutes, statutes so police officers never respond to certain kinds of emergencies, including ones that involve substance abuse, domestic violence, homelessness, or mental health. Instead, healthcare workers or emergency response teams would handle these incidents. So, if someone calls nine one one to report a drug overdose, healthcare teams rush to the scene. Uh, the police would not get involved. If a person calls 911 to complain about people who are homeless, well, rapid response social workers would provide them with housing support and other resources. So it's essentially a shifting of funding from the police to these other community organizations. Is that what what you're also calling for? Absolutely. Uh, those guys and I are very much on the same page, and, and we're, we're in communication with each other, and I think we think of ourselves as part of a national movement. Mm-hmm. It's trying to reframe the conversation around policing away from these superficial reforms to instead, you know, dialing back our over-reliance on policing. And those cuts that you're calling for, you uh, you called on uh, Minneapolis Mayor uh, Jacob Fry to cut the police budget by $45 million and to shift those resources into community-led health and safety strategies. So we'd still be sending, spending the same amount, but we would be spending it on other things and essentially give the cops different duties than they are obviously failing to carry out now. That's right. Fewer duties, not different duties, fewer duties. We want to dial those duties back. And that demand didn't come from me. That came from people in Minneapolis. The Black Visions Collective, mm-hmm. Reclaim the Block, well-established groups who were doing this organizing, who were doing it even before the killing of Floyd. So we need to lift those voices up, support them, in their grounded demands to try to make some progress on this issue. And, of course, Donald Trump and his Republicans, they are now uh, out there calling to essentially turn our nation's cities 
into militarized battlegrounds and to call in the military uh, in, in, into cities around the country. Though, to be frank, uh, when I saw that call, uh, Alex Vitale, I, you know, and I see people sort of freaking out about it. It seems to me that these places are already militarized and have most of the same equipment and firepower that you know, that local police agencies already have. They've already been given since 9-11. So, I mean, is is there any real difference other than, uh, I guess, an emotional and legal one that they're talking about when they're saying, well, the police have failed, now we're going to bring in the military? Well, I mean, this should be terrifying to the American public, the possibility of this. I mean, this is a sign of, of profound political failure that the that the president would try to, develop a military solution to what is obviously a political problem mm -hmm. and this is a political calculation to appeal to the most conservative and authoritarian elements of his base by suggesting there's a military solution to this problem and it's certainly true that american policing has become more militarized and that the american military has become more policing focused mm -hmm. And it is, there is a gray area, for sure, between the two. But for the federal government to take over local law enforcement this way, I want to know where are all the Second Amendment folks, all the patriots, yeah. who are concerned about an overreaching state, where is their opposition to this move? Yeah, where, where, are the, uh, where are the Oath Keepers? Why are they not out protesting this uh, outrage? But that's on yep. sort of on the uh, Republican side. They always like to pretend to be the party of law and order. But you also argue that uh, while Democrats at the national level have been better about calling out racism and calling for accountability, that they have also, quote, failed to propose a single significant reduction in specific police powers, preferring to call for more investigations and the establishment of more civilian review boards, which have never shown any effectiveness in reducing abusive policing. If the Democrats are not out uh, leading the, uh, the call for this, who is, and do you see a way to, to move those Democrats to actually make some of this happen? The situation on the federal level is not great. Now, I will say, in fairness, Ayanna Presley, mm -hmm. who issued a statement directly about this crisis that I think is not helpful, has been supporting an overall rethink on federal criminal justice policy that is very good that is about shifting resources from criminalization to building up communities. And that's really what we've got to do. So we've got to look to this kind of new generation of congressional leaders like AOC and Presley, the mm -hmm. gang, if you will, who do understand the dangers of using criminalization. But my concern is that, you know, the mainstream of the Democratic Party what we hear from them is to go back to the Obama game plan that has so totally failed us. And I don't, I'm not optimistic about the future in that regard. And by the way, just to be clear, uh, they're called the squad, not the gang. The squad. They've got enough Sorry. problems. Please don't call, uh, please don't put them in a gang. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you bet. Uh, so how does this, uh, how does this all, how does this all practically uh, start, Alex? What, what sort of initiatives should Americans be demanding? And yeah, you know, it, often these programs do not happen. It's not like the elected leader 
leaders start calling from it f- for this. It always comes from the ground up, from the grassroots. So what sort of initiatives uh, should our uh, listeners be demanding at this point, and, and who do they direct that to? Well, they've got to be looking to see if where they already are, there are campaigns underway to defund the police. They may be happening and people are not aware of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is, for instance, in Los Angeles, a major effort. One of the labels they use is Care Not Cops, and it, it should be possible to find them and connect to them. It's a large coalition of groups that's making real progress and undermining the idea that police are the solution to all our problems. And if there isn't such a group, then people need to form one. Mm. And they need to start uh, leaning on their city council members to say, we want real solutions to our neighborhood problems, not more police. Have any police uh, departments around the country, Alex, uh, done a better job as you see it, whether it's in response to the... uh the protests in the wake of the uh, killing of George Floyd uh, or anything else. Are you seeing anything hopeful uh, or, or, or any uh, uh, police forces that we can sort of cite as examples of how this should go? Well, not in big cities. Mm-hmm. It's been pretty depressing. Mm. I, I think maybe the police who feel under siege have lost the one sort of rhetorical tool they had to convince themselves and everyone else that it was going to be okay, which were all these procedural reforms. And I think they themselves don't believe it anymore either. And so they've just decided to double down on authoritarianism, Mm -hmm. on brute force. And the irony of that is that this is exactly the criticism of policing that got us into this mess. So it's a very toxic dynamic, and my only hope is that as the immediacy of the protests subside, that people connect with these real movements to do the kind of sustained political organizing on the ground that can help change the, the view about policing and, and develop a kind of new majoritarian politics that is more humane and, and less centered on, on punishment and vengeance. And forgive me, but I have not read your uh, your new book, The End of Policing. Is that uh, about exactly this topic? Just based on it's the title, I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah, it's a roadmap. It looks at the specific things we've asked police to do and shows how counterproductive they are, and then it lays out concrete alternatives. We don't have to fill our police with schools. We could hire counselors, put in restorative justice programs, develop high-quality after-school activities. It is possible. Uh, Alex, last question here just before airtime today. The uh, state of Minnesota, I believe the Attorney General Keith Ellison, announced that the state will be filing civil rights charges against the Minneapolis Police Department. Uh, What does that mean exactly, and and what effect is that hoped to have, I guess, by the state? And and does somehow that improve the situation that you're, you're focusing on? Unfortunately, I don't think it does, because what typically happens with these kinds of civil rights cases is that the city agrees to a settlement with either the DOJ or a state attorney general, Mm -hmm. and that settlement is almost always a whole bunch of procedural reforms. (laughs) Back to where we started. Right. This has to be solved not in the courts. It has to be solved in the budget battles. 
over the direction of our cities. Alex S. Fatali is a professor of sociology at Brooklyn College. He's their co- coordinator of their policing and social justice project. You can find him on the Twitters at A. Vitali. And you can find his website with much more information on his book, The End of Policing, at alex info. And we will, of course, link to his uh, article at The Nation uh, this week entitled, The Only Solution is to Defund the Police. Greatly appreciate you joining us uh, today, Professor, uh, and starting this conversation. I hope we can continue it in the uh, days, weeks, and months ahead. My pleasure. You're most welcome. Thank you, sir. Man, I'll tell you, Desi Doyen, uh, while I know that everyone is you know, spending a lot of time watching their protest porn on uh, local and cable stations across the country, yeah. this conversation, I think, is a really important one. Oh, definitely. The idea of defunding the, the police. And, you know, uh, Alex was going to speak on CNN today. We actually uh, had planned to hope to talk to him earlier. That got pushed back because of CNN. And then CNN decided, I guess they didn't want to have that conversation after all. Yeah, he, uh, they didn't want to talk to him about defunding the police. How strange. Or maybe they were just busy. There's a lot going on. There's other things going on. They didn't want to have that conversation. They, they didn't have time to have that conversation today. Maybe. Hopefully, our friends at CNN will find the time for that conversation because I think it's important. I think it's the only thing that's going to get us out ultimately from this soup, from these continuing disasters year after year after year. Anyway, just a thought. Glad we could have that conversation. Glad he could join us. Quick break and we are back with... More Desi Doyen (laughs) and the Green News Report straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Desi, you'll you'll make it all better, right? <laughs> as as you always do with your GNRs. We will try. That's all I can say. We'll oh. try. Well, there is what does Yoda say? There is no do or do not. There is no try. Thank you very much. <laughs> In our latest Green News report, Trump EPA moves to block states' authority over pipelines. UN delays crucial climate summit for a year due to pandemic. Good news for breathers as more coal plants close in 2020. Plus, several stations in north central Siberia, including areas near or above the Arctic Circle, are seeing temperatures climb well into the 80s. Siberian heat wave brings zombie fires. Fantastic. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. The plague of locusts that has been devastating crops in eastern Africa has now officially spread into India. A swarm the size of a square kilometer eats as much as 35,000 people in a single day. (laughs) Really, Desi Doyen? I thought locusts were herbivores. (laughs) This is your 
Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, sometimes around here we have to write really, really fast. <laughs> yes. And in such a case as that, sometimes locusts become human-eating machines, apparently, <laughs> according to you and your previous Green News report. Yes, and of course, that isn't true. It's just a one missing word, a very important word. A very important word that we caught in time. So yes. that's a blooper. That's an outtake. I think people deserve something for all the hell we're currently going through. What fresh hell do you have for us today? Well, first up, the United Nations Annual Climate Change Conference has officially been canceled due to the coronavirus pandemic. It will be postponed for a full year until November 2021. That's not good. This year's meeting, called COP26, was the most important climate change summit since 2015. That conference established the landmark Paris Climate Accord. The world's governments all were supposed to ratchet up their national commitments to cut emissions this time. Current pledges put the world on track for a catastrophic three degrees Celsius of warming this century. President Trump's withdrawal from the agreement, the only nation to do so, won't take effect until the day after Election Day in November 2020. Extreme heat above the Arctic Circle is causing zombie fires. What? Siberia has just had a weeks-long record-breaking heat wave. Normally, it hovers around 30 degrees. But a town in Siberia's Arctic Circle registered a record high of 78 degrees Fahrenheit just last week. This comes on the heels of a record warm winter and unusually dry surface conditions, causing the Arctic ice melt season to start two weeks early and fueling fears of a devastating summer wildfire fire season and melting permafrost. Both release carbon and methane, which contribute to global warming. The Washington Post reports that the unusually high temperatures are causing so-called zombie fires in both Siberia and Alaska. Those are holdover fires from last year that continue smoldering beneath the snowpack even in the dead of winter. Really? And then ignite again with full force as temperatures rise. So the fire continues to burn all throughout the winter? Under the snow. I want to say very cool, but I guess very bad. Yeah. On the other hand, given that we're going through a global pandemic and riots and curfews here in the U.S. and plagues of locusts in Africa and India, when you said we had zombie fires, I thought there was going to be actual zombies. <laughs> so, hey, things could be worse. Exactly. No zombies. Yet. Here in the U.S., Trump Environmental Protection Agency Chief Andrew Wheeler on Monday signed a new regulation limiting the state's and tribes' powers to block fossil fuel infrastructure projects, altering the way the Clean Water Act has been applied for more than 50 years. The new rule would severely cut state authority to stop construction of new pipelines, coal terminals, and other fossil fuel projects by making it impossible for a state to block a water permit for a project for any reason other than direct pollution into state waters. Aren't those guys Republicans? Yes. Didn't they used to believe in states' rights? Yeah, that was not real. I guess they can pick and choose as they see fit. The new rule also sets a one-year deadline for states to approve projects, setting up another legal fight with Democratic governors who have vetoed fossil fuel projects to combat climate change and pollution. 
In Alaska, ominous news for opponents of the controversial, massive proposed pebble mine. The Trump EPA informed the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers last week that it would not delay or oppose the huge copper and gold mine for the pristine Bristol Bay watershed, despite the EPA acknowledging in its own filings that the mine will cause irreversible damage to the streams that are crucial to the world's most prolific salmon fishery. Mm. Local Native American tribes, conservationists, and the commercial fishing industry have been fighting to stop the pebble mine for more than a decade. But some good news. U.S. electric companies have announced plans to close 13 polluting coal plants in 2020, with two other plants to be converted to natural gas. Analysts say the trend confirms the U.S. is shifting away from costly coal to cheaper, cleaner natural gas and renewable energy, primarily wind and solar. Electricity from coal fell to its lowest level since 1964, Mm. and renewable energy now generates more electricity in the United States than coal. Mm, That's very good news, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. Although I'm a little disappointed there were no zombies. <laughs> For much more on all of these reports and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Oh, well, okay, there you go. You did make it better. Good news about (laughs) oil and gas, plus zombies, sort of. So we'll take it. We will take what we can get as ever. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Indeed. Let's see, what else do we have? That's it. We just get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our guest today, Professor Alex S. Vitali of Brooklyn College, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. We hope we made it slightly better for you to get through the day or night. Uh, If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. And for, as you know, as a guy who I mentioned yesterday does not like, you know, protester porn, disaster porn, I don't watch the cable around the clock, it's hard to escape it out here in Hollywood with the helicopters circling over us for this entire show. Sure. But I will say this, there's another curfew in L.A. County uh, today at 6 p.m. We didn't get out of the radio station uh, until after that. As bad as as good as the traffic was during the coronavirus stay-at-home orders, this uh, curfew stuff is fantastic for uh, traffic around L.A. County. Okie dokie, Van. Just saying. <laughs> just okay. Just, You're just reporting that. on the very good traffic. I'm seeing the upside to everything here today, Des, because I have no hard, choice. <laughs> All right, uh, that's it. Oh, you can email me if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. That is it. Until we see you again tomorrow, I hope. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.